Brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the first day of the first month of 2023, a year that is not yet even a half day old. We say, Happy New Year. Why do we mark the passing of time? We know which year it is, which month, which day, which hour, and, if we want to, which minute. Some of us even know which second it is. How often don't we grab our phone to look at the clock now and set alarms on our phones? Why do we need to know this? It seems that of all the creatures of God, so you can think of your pets or animals in the farm or animals in the bush, of all the creatures of God, we've been given a keen sense, maybe not as good a sense of smell or sight as our dogs, but a keen sense of past, present, and future. Our dogs do not know who won the Second World War, nor do they know what year Martin Luther nailed up his 95 theses. They don't know about 9-11 or the war in Ukraine, but we do. And God must want us to know, since he gave us minds with which to understand the idea of past, what's happened, present, and what I just, when I just said present, that's already past now, right? So that vanishing moment of the present and future. Time. Time. But there must be more to it. What does God want us to do with our curiosity about time? Surely not just turn the calendar with a shrug. He wants us to be able to learn from the past and make progress. He wants us to have a sense of purpose to aim for something ahead of us. So as we stand in this moment, that vanishing present, we're constantly orienting ourselves to what has happened and thinking about what will come. And in the midst of that, we should also attach a spiritual purpose to the knowledge of time. Since we know that the Lord made promises in the past, we can mark the time until he fulfills them. Faith, trust in what he says. Faith is required for us. To bridge the gap between what God has promised and what God will do to fulfill his promise. Faith lives in the meantime, the time between promise and fulfillment. It's oriented to the past and the future. Faith is tested. Marking the years is a test of faith. As we mark another year without the return of Christ, will we still believe that he is actually going to return? Or will the passing of time make you doubt that he's going to return? See, true faith says he said he would return, and whatever God said before, he did, so he is going to return, and I believe it, and I'm going to live my life exactly in accordance with the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return on the clouds of heaven. That's living by faith, because God said it, 
Spirit seals it in our hearts. We believe it. So we mustn't give up on his promises and conclude that he's taking too long or that he doesn't really care about us, though we live in a time and in a world where we are more and more urged that there's a better way to live. Mankind has determined all kinds of ways to live much longer. We have a longer span of life because medically speaking, we're doing so very well. Who knows where we'll be in another generation or two. And so as we come to the beginning of the new year, the Lord Jesus speaks to us with encouragement from our text in Luke 21 and briefly put his message as this, be watchful until my coming. And I've summarized the text in this way, knowing our worries, knowing our worries and weaknesses, the Lord warns us to be watchful till his coming. When you think about it, that he does it knowing our worries and knowing our weaknesses, it's an act of love that he says, be watchful till I come. It's an act of love knowing our weaknesses and worries and knowing that reminders are helpful for us. And so he brings that to us. Knowing our worries and weaknesses, the Lord Jesus warns us to be watchful till his coming. But watch yourselves, verse 34 of our text, lest your hearts be weighed down. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down in the senses, don't ever let this happen to you. There would be all kinds of things that could make our hearts heavy. But if we would watch ourselves carefully, not letting those things drag us down, then we might be able to escape something terrible. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. It was when his disciples pointed out the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem that the Lord Jesus felt it was time to teach them about some of the terrible things that were coming. That's in 21 verse 5. And then his words about every stone being thrown down were startling to them. You see, at that time, the temple was being continuously improved. King Herod had made it his pet project. He spared no expense for it. The walls were made from gleaming white marble. Many parts were covered with shining gold. The size of some of its foundation stones, its great pillars, its perfect details made the temple in Jerusalem an architectural wonder. It really was. But the Lord Jesus warned his followers not to idolize this great temple. As beautiful as it was, the whole thing was like a whitewashed tomb. For those who controlled the temple did not truly serve the Lord. So they weren't really alive spiritually. They did not recognize the time of God's coming to them, as we read in Luke 19, verse 44. And this means that they did not acknowledge the Lord Jesus to be the Son whom God had sent. They did not recognize what would have brought them real peace. Acknowledging God's coming to them in Christ. And now that they had rejected this peace, they would never have peace. Instead, their enemies would surround Jerusalem, then build an embankment against its walls, and finally enter the city to kill all its people and destroy its buildings. And as we read, nursing mothers and pregnant mothers would be in great distress, for the invading armies would not even spare them or their children. 
the city would be destroyed and its destruction would serve as a sign of God's judgment on all those who refuse to recognize the time of God's coming to them. So there's a, there's a general principle there that those who fail to recognize the timing of God's coming to them, fail to prepare, fail to get ready, Here's the sign of judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the Lord Jesus taught his disciples not only about the destruction of the temple and the city, but also about his second coming. He taught them about his second coming in the same breath because at his second coming there will also be great distress for many of the inhabitants of the earth. Many will find that it's too late to flee the wrath of God just as the people within Jerusalem found out in A.D. 70 that it was too late to flee the wrath of the Roman army. The Lord wanted his disciples to be assured that if they would observe his teachings, they could escape this terrible distress. Now, if you study this history, and there is really good historical record of all these things, the early church did flee from Jerusalem as these things began to happen. And they were spared in its terrible destruction. Well, in obedience to the Lord, we too need to hear His Word from this text and obey it in order to be spared eternal destruction. We must understand that it took quite some time for the Lord Jesus to come to earth the first time. If you count all the way back to the time when God promised that Satan's head would be crushed in Genesis 3, verse 15, the first Christmas day took thousands of years to arrive, somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 years. And after waiting that long, many people, people who all knew their Old Testament, did not recognize that the Lord Jesus was the Redeemer God had promised. So their hearts were weighed down with dissipation, it says in the text, with drunkenness and with the anxieties of life. Three things get mentioned in verse 34. Dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. So no longer recognizing the great problem of their sins, they did not recognize the great gift of God's salvation. They wanted a different kind of Messiah than the one that God provided. They knew their Bibles, and they were religious people, very religious, but they were not people of true faith. Even the faith of the first disciples was weak. So is ours. By the grace of God, they did believe that He was their Savior and Lord in the, early, the first disciples. But they, and we, needed to be warned about his return. That's our text. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. You'll think he's not coming. You'll worry. You'll despair. You'll give up. And you'll find idols to try and feel better. You see, a weighed down heart isn't spiritual. It's heavy. It's stuck on earth. It's weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. So it's not lifted up to God. We live with many anxieties today. Mortgages are high on the list and they will be higher on the list in 2023. Can we pay it this month? 
do we have to refinance? And what if we have to sell in this market when we bought, you know, in the one just a year or two ago? Do the books look good this year for our business or not? And our own jobs can bring a lot of worry too. Is my performance good enough? How will I ever get those jobs done on time? Where can I find the people I need? People starting up a business also face enormous pressures. Plans need to come together, contracts need to be signed, startup financing, employee training, online advertising. And these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the anxieties of life that the Lord Jesus is talking about. Now, he uses a word here in verse 34 which is translated as dissipation. This refers to an overindulgence of one's pleasures, right? You just got to feel good. That's what the world tells you. And, you know, you've got all kinds of ways of feeling better. So dissipation. Now, in Greek, this word is actually the word for a hangover. The dissipation here in Greek describes the sick feeling a person has the morning after they have been drunk. One then feels shooting pain or confusion in the head, and along with this comes the feeling of disgust with oneself for being so foolish. But you have to endure it. And to be weighed down with a hangover is to have it bother you all the time. Water, fruit juice, crackers, Tylenol. And you become focused on yourself in a non-productive way. You are no longer able to put your mind on God and His will. So that's the dissipation, the hangover. And then the Lord also refers to drunkenness, so He has in mind some very concrete things here. No Reformed believer should need to be reminded of the evil of drunkenness. And yet it was the Lord Jesus Himself who warned His disciples against the sin. He warned His own twelve disciples. We don't know that any of them were addicts, but they needed to hear this, and we all need to hear this. It's recorded for us. We may not take this lightly, for he addresses us just as directly. Watch yourselves closely, lest your heart should ever be weighed down with a hangover, or with drunkenness, or with worries of life. Be careful. You know, drunkenness is a choice. Each person is responsible for himself, herself. If you choose to get drunk, then you've chosen to act against the Lord. And a drunk person is not prepared for the return of Jesus Christ, and that day will come upon him unexpectedly like a trap. Now, there are more things to get drunk on than booze. I don't mean illegal drugs, though. Obviously, you can include all kinds these days. But in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth committed adultery with the great prostitute. And we read in Revelation 17, verse 2, that with the wine of her sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. They were intoxicated with her adulteries. The pleasure of it grabbed them and filled their senses. They were drunk on adultery. If anyone 
has experienced what it's like to have an addiction to pornography, you can understand this kind of description of being drunk with it. This same prostitute, Revelation 17, verse 6, put to death so many of the church that we read that she was drunk with the blood of the saints. Spilling their blood exhilarated her. And today, the sexual revolutionaries changing Western society very quickly They stand against the church misusing the language of rights. It fills them with excitement and they can get drunk on the pleasure of the fight. Well, the day of the Lord's coming calls for a clear mind. It calls for the right arranging of our lives. That's why we must not fill our senses and minds with worldly cares. Well, there are legitimate earthly cares. The Lord Jesus never denies that. Your loved ones, your vows to God, your work which is a calling from Him. But they mustn't rule or they'll enslave. They mustn't fill or they'll squeeze out what really matters. It's easy to fill our lives with snaps and reels and notifications to check who tagged us, who posted, who tweeted, etc. It's easy to get drunk on sports, follow every professional team, watch as many games as possible, know every stat, and argue about the big player trades. But what do these things have to do with the coming of the kingdom of the Lord? Do they promote living in connection with Jesus' work of the past and looking forward to him coming again? Very little. We end up living in this eternal present with no thoughts of judgment, no thoughts of what is coming, and life's about shaping our profile, our story, our connections. Now, if we cannot remain clear-minded and self-controlled, then the trap has already been set and our our foot is just about to come into it. And even the troubles with our mortgage need to be brought to the Lord in prayer so that they will not consume our lives. Give over to him what you can't control or change. Trust him, brothers and sisters. And unless we're steady about praying, even the simplest things in life can, be, life can feel like a trap. You feel like you cannot get away. You cannot change anything. You cannot stop the ever-turning wheel. And you are trapped. Life is weighed down with troubles. And if you see this, then you should know that prayer lifts us up. Prayer gives you a perspective from above to show you a way out of the trap, and it's the way of trusting in the Lord. Every time you lose the way, you pray, your heart is lifted up. Your priorities are reorganized, your commitments are realigned. The Lord restores us, realigns us, refreshes us. Walk by faith. He promised it. Spirit sealed it on my heart. I believe it. I live by it. Walk by faith. Now we all remember 9-11. It was a terrible tragedy. No one had any advance warning. Even after the first plane struck, who realized that a second was on its way? Who had time to get out? 
their day of reckoning came too soon, it seems. But if they were people of prayer, then they could be prepared every day, at every moment. They could engage in life and in all its pressures without letting their heart be taken over by it all, without being weighed down and lost. By faith in Christ, they could be lifted up every day and lift up every day's care to the Lord. 9-11 is a good illustration of that day coming like a trap. The trap is hidden in the underbrush and the grass. As the rabbit goes merely hopping by, suddenly its leg is caught fast in the trap or its neck is caught in the snare. One of the families in a church that I served had its dog come home with the wire of the snare around its neck, but it was still alive. Evidently, it had gotten itself loose. But a few days later, the dog was gone again, and this time it did not return. They could not find it back. Maybe some other trap had sprung on it and caught it unexpectedly. The Lord Jesus says, and I'll just give you my translation here of verse 23. He says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts should ever be weighed down with hangovers and drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day should come on you unexpectedly like a trap. Remember, traps spring on those who don't know that they're there. The day of Christ's return should not spring like a trap on you. You know that he is coming. Our problem is that when we stop living by faith, we also stop watching carefully. We stop praying. We stop understanding the signs which point to his coming. And so in the same way as drunkenness dulls the senses... Those without true faith no longer see the judgment of God in wars, in earthquakes, in famines, in all the misery. Now, I do not mean that specific sins are always punished with specific judgments like Job's three friends tried to argue over and over. But we do know that misery is due to the righteous curse of God. Only by faith in the promises, trusting in the Lord, will we escape and let not the trap spring on you. Your brothers and sisters in the church will not find you back. What else can we do? The Lord Jesus repeats his admonition in a slightly different way. He says in verse 36, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And here's the mention of prayer, which we've already um, dwelled upon somewhat. Praying that you may have strength to escape. Praying that you may have strength. We also have a verb that means to be vigilant and to stay awake. It refers to the total abstinence from sleep, a watchfulness, right? It says, be always on the watch, verse 36. You could translate also, be vigilant at every moment, just watching. Now, you can think of a guard who has the night shift, is not allowed to sleep. He has to stay awake and be vigilant, looking out and listening for trouble. Now, Let me just say, 
What I don't think we should think about is a soldier who's suffering from PTSD and can't relax anymore and his eyes just dart everywhere. Maybe some of you knew someone who fought in Indonesia generations back and was scarred for life thereafter. We're not talking about never being able to relax because ultimately your vigilance is trusting in the Lord. He has this in his control. Expecting the Lord Jesus to return and it will be a good day when your Savior is your judge. Now, we're to be vigilant and stay awake. That's the way we should be when it comes to our moral life as Christians. To be vigilant at every moment is to be attentive to spiritual things. We're to be alert. Now, the Guinness Book of World Records when I checked it a while ago, claimed that one Robert McDonald stayed awake for 453 hours and 40 minutes in a rocking chair. If you're really fast with 24 hours, you would have figured out that's 18 days awake. And others point to an experiment of one Randy Gardner who was observed to stay awake for 11 days straight. He then slept for 14 hours and was in good condition. Don't try it, by the way. <laughs> now, these great records are not good enough for the spiritual life. We're to be vigilant all the time. No spiritual sleep is allowed. When the Lord Jesus urged us to be always on the watch, he really meant that. We must be vigilant at every moment. <clears throat> and that's not simply because Jesus could return at any moment. It is because as soon as we just coast along spiritually, we stop being rightly prepared for his coming. The right preparation doesn't mean that we have to be perfect, but that we have to be seriously engaged as Christians in living for the Lord. They have a meaningful life of hearing from God when you read his word, a meaningful life of praying to him with thanksgiving, and a meaningful life of asking him for what you need. It's an ongoing thing to be seriously engaged in living for the Lord. And the commands he gives us are in the present tense. Be vigilant, be watchful, watch yourselves, and so on. And they are indicating these are ongoing matters of the Christian life. Are you, <clears throat> are you strong enough to escape the lure of the world's adulteries? And this doesn't just mean sexual, clearly, but it means the lure of temptations, taking what's not yours, and so on. Can you withstand the power of the dollar? Can you live without constant anxiety about your mortgage? Getting intoxicated with the pleasures of the world may seem to help flirting around, gambling, professional car racing, sexual fascination, perfectly managing investments. But you see, the kind of, the way Jesus speaks about it, being drunk on these things, which do not promote the kingdom of God, is a sign of weakness, not of strength. The strength we need is a strength in order to escape. The Lord Jesus says, pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to happen. 
So we need to continue to pray that we will have strong, will be strong enough to escape all the lure of sin and so escape the judgments of the Lord. So how often do you pray to escape the enticement of the world? Do you ever pray to the Lord when you scroll through your apps? Will he help you see through empty worldviews? The view of the world where no one is happy with what they have and where things can make you happy, where products can make you feel good, where beer can supply you with the meaning of life. We should pray about that when we are online, watching TV, looking at advertisements, and they are everywhere, even along the highway as we drive now. We should pray about that when we are online, just in all of life. The worldview that is assumed is often totally against the Bible. We need to learn to be content in the Lord, to find our happiness in Christ, and to know that God gives us the meaning of life. And we need to know that there is a judge who's holding the whole world accountable for everything that is thought, said, and done. And the last day, we read in verse 35, will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. No one will be exempt. So you take that to heart for yourself. You take that to heart for all the people so dear and close to you whom you love. You take that to heart for your neighbors as well, and you spread the gospel. The day is coming, and 2023 brings us closer to that day. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you vigilant about living for the Lord? There's a day of judgment coming. Yes, of judgment. And such judgment is meant to make us think about where we stand before God. Now, numerous people have been converted to Christ at the thought of dying. They realized how short their life really is and wondered about the meaning of it. They knew from their conscience a sense of right and wrong, plus a sense that these, these categories come from somewhere, and they're upheld somehow, and nobody lacks some sense of what they think is good, what they think is right, and so on. It's in the structure of being human. And then people began to feel accountable before the God who will, up, will judge all men. And as they considered life without him, they grew fearful. And as they grew fearful, they began to turn to God for forgiveness that they might escape his condemnation at the day of judgment. And this was the one thing necessary for the Jews in Jesus' day, but they refused, and so many were destroyed. How much more shall you suffer destruction in the last day if you who know so much do not repent? Our hope can only be in the same Lord Jesus Christ who warned his church with these words of our text. And shortly after saying them, he stood in the judgment for us. He took our curse. We have to see that and believe in him. He knew very well that it was God's covenant people who would face judgment first. In his own time, they knew their scriptures. They were very religious, but they did not recognize the day of God's coming to them in Christ. They did not walk by faith. Now, we can know the Scriptures, and we can be very religious, too. 
But at the same time, it's quite well possible to be asleep about judgment, asleep about true righteousness, asleep about the past, and asleep about the future. Woe unto us if we do not take the words of the Lord to heart. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts should ever be weighed down, and that day should spring on you like a trap. Be vigilant at every moment, praying that you may have full strength to escape and to stand at the last day. Stand by the strength of Christ before the throne of Christ. Stand before your judge, who is also your Savior. So we pray for alertness, that we may not be caught sleeping. And let's then just in closing see that this kind of spiritual vigilance requires the gift of the Holy Spirit. For it's the very Spirit of God who joins the bride of Christ in crying out, Come, Lord Jesus. So we need the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's put our trust in God our Father and Jesus Christ His Son who will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He's the Spirit who works and strengthens faith. He makes it possible for us to live, as we said, in this meantime by true faith in God, resting on the promises of the past and looking forward to the fulfillment of the future. And although we'll be tested every day, by the grace of God, we'll also stand at the last day. You will stand because Jesus Christ has stood in the judgment for you as your loving Savior. And knowing that, we can have courage to ask Him to come quickly. And loving Him, we will want Him to come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together as we sing now. Hymn 67, stanzas 1, 2, 6, and 7, praying for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ.
We'll join our hearts together now in thanksgiving.